Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. The U.S.-China strategic military balance and how EVE Online explains everything? To discuss on another edition of China Acquisition Talk, Tom Shugart joins the show. He's an adjunct fellow at CNAS and previously spent 25 years in the U.S. Navy on subs and ended his military career at the Defense Department's Office of Net Assessment. Tom, welcome to China Acquisition Talk. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's great to be here. And Eric, thank you. Recently, you testified in front of Congress talking about the U.S.-China military balance, specifically in the Indo-Pacific, and relayed your sort of state of the game and how it may be changing in the upcoming decade. Why don't you throw it over to you, Eric? Sure, yeah. I found the, the testimony pr- quite interesting, and you started off with this nice quote that said, quote, the PLA, which is, of course, the People Liberation Army, Uh, has been engaged in what could be accurately described as the largest and most rapid expansion of maritime and aerospace power in generations. So how would you articulate this problem and what China is doing to a person who argues DOD is overfunded and we need to reprioritize our effort onto social issues? So I guess the way that I would look at it is I, I try not to think of myself as a China hawk or an alarmist. I just point at facts. So the facts are what they are. The areas that I pointed at in that testimony are the ones where you can see trend lines and facts that are really very obvious, that the things that can be seen, literally seen from space in some cases, in terms of things that can be counted from space, like bombers, aircraft, and and, and ships. So what we see, the, the kind of three most obvious manifestations that I talk about in the testimony are the expansion of China's long range conventionally, very precise ballistic missiles, the expansion of their bomber force, and the expansion of their navy. And the facts are what they are. In terms of comparisons with previous expansions, and the reason why I say the biggest in generations is just in terms of sheer numbers and size, the expansion that we're seeing in the Chinese Navy is equivalent to what we saw for the U.S. Navy's expansion during the legendary 1980s Reagan buildup to the you know the 600-ship Navy that people have talked about ever since then. The numbers are exactly the same in terms of the numbers of ships launched over the last five-year period for which we have uh, really good data, which the numbers that I, I, I came up with were 2015 to 2019. In terms of the missile force, I just used the numbers provided by the Department of Defense in the 2020 China Military Power Report that this just straight up the number of DF-26 IRBM launchers is 200 plus. And if you just look at what the normal practice is for China to have reload missiles available, that would imply a force of, if you just had one reload per missile launcher, a 400 plus missile intermediate range ballistic missile force. This is the dramatic expansion from what anybody expected over this time frame, I think, where in the past we typically were worried about dozens of anti-carrier missiles. We're talking hundreds now of much longer range missiles that are able to reach through the, throughout the second island chain and across across the Indo-Pacific, especially if you consider the possibility of them being launched from Western China. So I think if people talk about, characterize different people as China hawks or alarmists, I see myself no more a China hawk or alarmist than, you know, if some, then I would be, let's say we're sitting in a car together at a railroad crossing and I see a, a semi-truck bearing down on this 
in the rearview mirror that doesn't look like it's going to stop. If I point, point it out in the rearview mirror and say, hey, look at that, does that make me a tractor trailer alarmist? And this is, these are just the facts. They are what they are. If they're alarming, I didn't make them alarming. They just are what they are. Let's walk through some of the strategic implications of this expansion in, in military capability. So what does a long-range missile force and long-range bombers do to how China can reach out and touch America and its allies? We've known for quite some time, ever since basically the, the Chinese watched what happened in the Gulf War uh, with Iraq. They watched what happened twice with Iraq, and they, they saw how what our way of warfare looked like, where we were able to, with the Iraqis, build up these iron mountains of munitions, aircraft, and operate with relative uh, impunity from sanctuary from the Iraqis. And I think they saw how that worked and realized they didn't, never wanted to let that happen to them. So that was, I think, the first stage of the, that prompted the development of, you know, we call A2AD, you know, anti-access series denial. That's not really a Chinese term. So that was the first phase. And so we saw with that the development of their 21C medium-range ballistic missile land attack version and also the, the, carrier, the traditional, what we know as the carrier killer, the DF-21D. And that's prompted responses on the part of DOD now where we have the Navy's distributed maritime operations, the Marine Corps' the expeditionary advanced base operations concepts, EABO, DMO. The Air Force is dispersed, has its own concepts of operations for dispersed aircraft operations. But to some degree, what I think we see with the DF-20, the large numbers of DF-26s, for example, is that China, those concepts that we've come up with are were probably pretty predictable from their perspective, and they're upping the game even more with the, putting out even larger numbers of weapons. It's This is shouldn't be too surprising that we have an action-reaction situation happening where they're seeing the predictable responses to the A2AD threat that they've been posing now for a couple of decades. And now they're, I think they're moving on to the next phase of the game. We should be clear that the number of weapons that we're talking about, if, if it really is what it is, if the scale of expansion really is what it looks like, and if they're able to tie together the sensors and communications to make that all work like it's intended to, then that'll even make the concepts that we've come up with difficult to actually work in combat, because even those will be threatened with the number of weapons we're talking about. Maybe the acquisition talk side of the house has a full grip on all of those uh, battle concepts. But Tom, why don't you do a, a brief overview of w w what the U.S. reaction has been thus far to these uh, to this development? Uh, so the, the U.S. reaction to China's construct has largely been one of dispersion in, uh, across all the services. It's how can we disperse our forces so they're not as as vulnerable, so they're not concentrated in in, in large bases, that and or concentrated in the carrier groups. And none of this was done except in reaction, I think, for the most part, to that A2AD challenge, because that's not the most efficient way to operate. If the most efficient way to operate absent a threat like that is that from large bases, is from uh, carrier groups that are that concentrate their firepower. So this is a reaction that is going to cause more, it's going to be more challenging to do the things we wanted to do. Uh, so it's not something that I think we're, we wanted to have to do, but it is what, the, what our reaction has been for the most part. There are some aspects of hardening as well. At least there's certainly been plenty of talk of it. And in the Pacific Defense Initiative recently, you know, more funds being looked for to continue down that road to, of additional hardening of bases as well. But I think most people understand that hardening aspect is only going to be so successful. We know that the PLA rocket force has penetrating warheads. We've seen them be tested, or it looks like that's what they've been testing at their impact ranges in Western China. So. That's an effort to make it harder for the Chinese rocket force to do what it seems like they want to be able to do, but it's not going to be you know, the end-all be-all. It's going to have to be a combination of all those actions. Yeah, so Tom, one of the things that you were pointing to in one of your papers was that the Chinese strategic thinkers are really rationalizing this idea of a preemptive strike policy as being defensive in nature. 
Can you explain that a little bit and, and what you think uh, the U.S. needs to do in order to respond? Well, what you'll see oftentimes from Chinese strategic writings is they'll talk about how their military is defensive only in nature and that their strategy is one of what they call active defense, where they're only going to respond militarily in response to uh, a provocation or a military action on the part of others. But what that really belies, though, in terms of what that term means to them is that sometimes that provocation to them can strictly be on the strategic level or the political level. So, for example, let's say I mean, the most extreme end, let's say that Taiwan declared independence, that the, the Taiwanese president came out and said they, they had declared independence. But China could, you know, per their strategic writing, they would consider that to be they would consider a kinetic attack on their part in response to that, using weapons, killing people, blowing stuff up to be a defensive action in response to what they consider to be an offensive action in the political realm. I think this has somewhat to do with the idea that the PLA and Chinese strategic thinkers don't think necessarily of uh, struggle as in the black, white, peace, wartime construct that many Western thinkers use, but rather as a continuum of struggle. So they may take uh, kinetic action response to merely a strategic or political challenge. That's only a matter of words being said out loud or statements being made. Tom, can we talk a little bit about what's on the U.S. side of the ledger? Where do you see America's strengths now as well as in the next five five to ten years if, if it should come to conflict? So I think some of those strengths are, exist in a couple different areas. One, one is just a greater worldwide operating experience of the U.S. military. So it's clear, you know, we've been involved in combat operations worldwide since 2001 in terms of actual kinetic combat operations. So there should be some element of combat experience that we have that others don't. But on the other hand, the types of combat operations we've been involved in bear very little resemblance to what we would expect to see in the high-end conflict. There's some historical parallels here, I think, with uh, World War I, for example, where and World War II, for that matter, where when you see the German army engaging in combat operations, for example, in the, the Blitzkrieg in World War II against Poland and, and in the West against France and Britain, one could look at the Germans and say the German army hasn't fought for 20 years and the British army has been inv- engaged in combat operations worldwide, so they should have an advantage. Missing the fact that in this specific example, the, the operations the British have been involved in in the years both before World War One and World War Two were largely imperial policing and brush fire wars around the world. That combat experience was essentially useless in high-end combat operations. So we've seen this movie before. So there's kind of a give and take there in, in terms of what our, the U.S. military's combat experience could provide benefit for and maybe not. So there's a potential advantage there. Another potential advantage is uh, the fact that a number of observers have pointed at the platform-focused nature of the U.S. military as a liability because when we place our combat power in expensive platforms such as destroyers, aircraft carriers, bombers, as opposed to swarms of weapons or a missile-focused military such as the Chinese military and the PLA rocket force, that one thing to consider is that if you do have a very system-disruptive, information warfare-intensive type of conflict, those multi-purpose platforms that the U.S. military is used to operating may provide a source of advantage. Specific example, that PLA rocket force that I talked about, your DF-26 Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile Unit, if it is cut off from communications, it is completely useless. 
in combat. It has no ability to find its own targets. It has no ability to defend itself, with, except the most limited local security force uh, protection, for example. So a system like that, or for example, unmanned swarm air aircraft, if they don't have very robust autonomous capabilities of the, of the type that I don't think we've really seen yet, if, it, if those units are cut off from communication, they're gonna be fairly helpless. In contrast, US guided missile destroyer, for example, or US submarine has organic sensors on board. It has the ability, at least within its local area, to find, classify, and attack, and still conduct combat operations in multiple different domains. So that's an example of where the, the traditional multi-purpose capabilities that we have may come to the fore in the event of conflict where both sides are suffering from extensive degradation of, of command and control networks. I think we can see Chinese respect for that to some degree in the fact that for all the talk of them being next generation, swarming, unmanned, they sure are bending a lot of iron building ships. So to some degree there, as they say, you know, uh, what's the term, what's the phrase? Invitations of sincerest formal flattery. Well, we're seeing a fair bit of that from the Chinese side. It's interesting, like, to what extent that is from a conception of, like, we're a first-rate power and first-rate powers have big navies, so we should have a big navy, as opposed to it being actually, as you frame it, a sort of appreciation of the command and control challenges that confronting a first-rate world power would almost certainly entail. Yeah, it's because it's something that it's hard to really put a put a pin on exactly what the balance is in those realms. So it's and that's why what do I do in, in a lot of my discussion? I count ships, I count aircraft. Those are the things that we can keep track of a little easier. Is there a military balance in in cyberspace? Of course. Is there a military balance in space? Of course. It's just a lot harder to be able to easily track the trends there in terms of where things are going. We know that they put you know incredible importance on those areas as well, and we'll certainly see challenges there too. I guess. It's easy to count things, but then it's the intangibles that might make a big difference. And you mentioned two things. One is like American operational experience. And then two is like the large multi-mission platforms that we have been building over the past several decades. In one respect, I think I'll just go with what former DepSec Def Bob Work had been describing when he was talking about the JADC2 join all domain command and control kind of concept. And I think a lot of the trend is moving towards what you're talking about, more networked, more tritable types of systems that can bring quantity of force to bear and be composable in various different ways. And he said something interesting about the combat experience as well, which was the, the U.S. does have that distinct advantage, but the relevance of the personnel advantage might be going down pretty fast. As he pointed to Gary Kasparov, who said, look, you can have a poor chess player with a pretty okay algorithm, and that team will beat the very best algorithm or the very best player most of the times. So he looked at that and thought about China. They might have less highly skilled individuals operating the systems, but if they have better algorithms, they have a better networking, they have better of these intangible things that aren't just counting numbers of things that they will eventually win. Maybe not now, but like in 5, 10, 15 year time frame. What's your thoughts on that? I think that there's a lot to be seen there for sure. And I'm sure that we are working on ways that, that we can use that kind of centaur construct of where you've got AI helping out there. I think that to some degree, it's going to be limited uh, by what policy is going to allow. There's certainly concerns about lethal autonomous weapons. Although it, what I find interesting is that oftentimes when people describe 
what a lethal autonomous weapon is, a lot of us who've been in the military for a while look at each other and say, we already have those. But if you look at the Aegis system, if you look at the captor underwater mine, these are well, lethal autonomous weapons are already out there. So the horses left the barn to some extent. In a related vein there, uh, as we've talked about A2AD and, and autonomous weapons, one of the things I talked about in the paper was an axiom that I came up with for three, three things we don't want to count on in the Western Pacific in that competition with China. One of them is systems that require continuous communication. Either we've got to be using man platforms or we need to get over our policy issues with lethal autonomous weapons because we know that the, that communications and C2 networks are a major area of focus for the Chinese in disrupting them in warfare. I don't think we want to count on something that requires uh, being able to talk to humans if, if you're actually, if you really want to rely on something like that to win the war. And I've got a couple more areas in that axiom that folks can look at in the testimony if they'd like. I would like to get your perspective here on a little argument between the Army and Air Force that's come up recently. So the Army has been working on these long range fires missions. And so they have precision strike missile, they have their own long range hypersonic weapon and, and different actually types of long range artillery that are coming out. But the Air Force kinds of look looks at that as duplicative of their own mission set where they have the b-21 bomber in development and they also have their own aero hypersonic missile and they see what the army's doing as duplicative especially in this era of declining budgets so that's creating this a little bit of inter-service rivalry i'd be interested to get your view on that spat and where america needs to how they need to think about the long-range fires mission but also compare that to what the chinese have they have their own service for the rocket forces. So they split that out and, and made it its own thing rather than dispersing that mission across all of their services. So any thoughts there? Of course. I, can, I think you can look at that argument for whether it's duplicative or not and, and whether we should be investing in Army long-range fires from both a theoretical and a practical perspective. From a theoretical perspective, I think it's you know just beneficial to provide an additional target set for the PLA to have to worry about for one thing and an additional vector of attack for them to worry about. From a practical perspective, if we know how hard it's going to be to break the kind of one-third, one-third, one-third system resource allocation construct that we've gotten used to for so many decades, and from a practical perspective, with my point of view that the challenge in the Pacific is the greatest, if the, if we can rechannel some of those army resources to contributing in a different way to the fight, then I'm all for it, assuming that that, that allocation is a probably going to be resistant to change to, to a significant degree. I think the Air Force argument, quite frankly, and I don't think this is an Air Force organizational position by any means. My only recollection is of one person saying that in one forum, which then caused a lot of heat and light. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> I, I don't think there's an Air Force position that to, to be opposed to Army long-range fires. But I, I don't think that argument, if there was, has a lot, you know, you know, holds a lot of water for a number of reasons. One is that we know that Using mobile missile launchers is a very, can be a quite effective, and in terms of where you are on the cost curve and how hard they are to kill, can be quite effective. We know from the Iraq war that we had extraordinary difficulty finding and destroying Saddam Hussein's uh, mobile missile launchers, even with the perfect shooting gallery of a desert where we had complete, complete air dominance and could you know go wherever we wanted. We had a lot of difficulty in finding and destroying mobile missiles. So we know that the Army's missiles, if they are able to develop them, will have inherent advantages in survivability over platforms that have to operate free of clutter out in the open air and out in the open sea. So there's certainly a survivability angle that we should be trying to capitalize on. Some folks uh, are concerned about, uh, well, we're going to have a hard time uh, finding allies that will host those, and we shouldn't develop them until we 
have allies that, that have signed up for them. I think that's a static point of view that doesn't recognize the dynamics, how the dynamics in the region will continue to change over time. If the trend lines continue as they have, assuming they do, and the China threat becomes ever more grave and, and, and comprehensive, those political positions could change dramatically pretty quickly. And I would hate to see us not have a capability, which takes years to develop because we chose to just uh, be conservative about it and, and assume that the political environment is going to stay the same. I have a question for you, Eric. Do you have any, like your relative confidence in the Air Force versus the Army to pull off developing this capability? Is everyone equally good at or not good at managing these sorts of projects? I'm, I agree with Tom. I think, and even General Hyten, who's an Air Force guy, is the vice chief. He said, we need all the services to be able to accomplish this mission. So I, I don't see it as like the Air Force or the Army is better suited in their acquisition role to, to take this on. I just think that there's a lot of uncertainty all around and redundancy and competition in development is the surest way to get something functional that works. And we saw the Arrow missile launch failure uh, last week. I don't think that's a setback. I think that's just a reality, but it also shows the, I, I guess, the wisdom of this kind of redundant overlap and the ability to innovate in those overlap seems. Because if you only have one service doing the one thing to rule them all, then you have an observation of one and you can't make any inferences about what works or doesn't work or whether it's too expensive or not expensive enough. On the question you had, and it's a great one of, should we have a separate rocket force? I'm not one to say that, you know, we should go do that right now. That would be <laughs> having just established the space force, that would be an extraordinary lift to establish another service. But what I will say is that as an observer of the PLA rocket force, and as somebody who's discussed it with the folks at all kinds of different levels, I've said in my original, when I first wrote about the rocket force in 2017, that there's a bit of a, that I think there's a bit of a blind spot in the US military to that development because we don't have anything like that. And what we, what we do have is still in development. And I still think that's true to this day. I can tell you that I have had conversations with people, you know, really well-known defense writers, flag and general officer level folks within DOD who had never heard of the PLA rocket force, even within the last couple of years. We're talking about an entire branch of the US's primary military competitor that these people had literally never heard of. It'd be like saying, it'd be like ask, talking to a Chinese thinker and they never heard of the US Air Force. It's really extraordinary to some degree what, what blindness there is uh, to that. As of yesterday, we're recording this on April 13th, the, the first 40 episode long TV drama about the PLA rocket force just hit the just hit the airwaves. You can find it on YouTube. It's called Hao Shou Jiu Wei. So Hao Shou, like a bugler, like stands in position, like bugler at the ready. So um, I'm not sure there's English subtitles out there yet, but definitely on my uh, to watch list in the next uh, oh, few weeks. Me too, for sure. I saw that, I definitely saw that that was happening and I'm very excited to, to take a look at it. It wouldn't be the first time we've seen the Rocket Force shown on Chinese TV. There's been various animations and short uh, pieces that have talked about the capabilities, but for them to make an entire series out of it shows tells you how important it is uh, to the Chinese military, which again, makes it shocking to me that the senior executive level folks within DOD potentially, or I have seen, have never even heard of it. That blind spot really does exist. And I think you see it also with the attack on our base in Iraq, on Al-Assad Air Base, by the Iranian missile forces that we saw that was so dramatic and that really shocked a lot of people that that capability exists. And then consider the fact that what the Iranians have and were able to do to us, that's patty cake compared to what, to what the PLA rocket force could bring to bear. That's fascinating that it just hasn't sunk in because there's no analogy. I don't know. I feel like there's like well, a Michael Poyani thing 
in that, Eric? Well, I mean, the blind, the blind spot in our case was, to, to a great extent, was driven by legal treaties that we'd signed up for. We signed up for the INF Treaty. So by following that for decades, had never built anything with that kind of range. And we also have never had any long-range uh, ballistic missiles that were not nuclear. They've all been all, all been nuclear tips. So we have a very different traditional idea of what ballistic missiles are for, particularly with that kind of range. Yeah, it's funny. Back in the uh, 50s, they actually thought hypersonic cruise missiles would be the easier technical challenge in the DOD. And you even had Vannevar Bush saying, we'll never get to ballistic missiles. And it turned out to be the exact opposite, kind of, in terms of difficulty. And so I guess that just shows when you should trust your experts or not is a hard question. Another thing you've been you've been up to, Tom, after leaving the military, is playing a lot of computer games, it seems. EVE Online, what is it and how is it relevant to understanding the way militaries work? So EVE Online is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG. I'll just call it MMO from here on out when the term comes up that is focused mainly on spacefaring spaceships flying around and uh, for the most part blowing each other up human players uh, for the most part so and when i say massively multiplayer there's millions of players uh, that are signed up for it i typically see about thirty thousand online at any one time when i log on that's typically what i see so a lot of people play in this game i didn't start because i wanted to learn things about it that could be useful for defense thinkers. I started because it just looked like a fun game. This was six or seven years ago that I, that I started playing. And initially when you first play the game, it's just you versus the computer. And if you want to get into fighting with other players, you very you tend to die very quickly and learn to stay in the kiddie pool end of the, uh, the environment. But after being online for a bit, I joined a corporation, which is players in the game will you know, have self-organized over time into groups, what are known as corporations, which is just players who band together to operate together and, and pool their resources, etc. And what I found was I was just really impressed by how effective they were at what they do in that game in terms of communicating, scouting, coordinating their actions, coming together as a fleet. And then again, this was years ago. And then I quit playing. I went off to command a submarine and go to sea, and I didn't really have time to, to do that anymore. Fast forward to COVID-19, and all of a sudden we're all stuck at home. I've got a bit more time on my hands. I was a geographic bachelor at the time from my, we were, I was dual, we're a dual military family before I retired. And I thought, well, let me go check this out again and see if there's useful things that, that I could learn now. And I joined a corporation that has, whereas before I flew with dozens of players the last time around, I joined a corporation with more than 10,000 members and that, that fields much larger groups to see what they had to, to provide. And just a few more points of clarification for the folks who may, maybe played World of Warcraft or what have you. The difference, uh, the main difference between EVE and, and WoW is that EVE is one server, not these sort of like clutched off little like servers, which only have a thousand or two people and the sort of degrees of freedom in which the players can operate is way broader than the likes of a World of Warcraft. As opposed to being a more of an amusement park ride, this is really like a create-your-own-adventure sandbox thing where the game itself is really an emergent thing where these corporations, which have thousands of people in them, battle and trade and take over and lose territory and, and what have you, making it a much sort of more representative facsimile of how you know organizations are run than, than you'd get in a sort of more tightly wound online experience you'd see in other games. So I've never played World of Warcraft, but that is my, the things you talked about are for the most part my impression that are some of the main differences. There is only one server, so everybody out there can interact with anybody else in different parts of the EVE universe. You know, they'd have to travel there to do it, but it also never goes away. Everything there is permanent. There is no, you don't win EVE. It's not, and there is no reset button and there's no, 
You don't respawn again when you lose a ship. You just lost the ship, period. So there's no getting it back. You basically, if whatever it is you lose, you have to go mine, recreate, buy, whatever, all over again. And in fact, the EVE's game developers say out loud in tweets and press announcements that this, the, the sense of loss is something that matters in their, EVE, in their EVE universe and they want it to be there. The game actually has grief counselors available for newer players that have trouble handling the rough handling they get at the hands of other players and, the, and also quite frankly the environment at times. So it is a bit different. I think it's also a 24-7 environment. So what you'll see, for example, in a large corporation like the one that I'm in, is that you have basically cadres that operate in different time zones and it's rolling operations 24-7 where and you have certain fleet commanders that are associated with different time zones and different style of play that happens. And it also drives resourcing decisions by the organization in terms of when they want to make things happen so that they can either log on their pilots at an, at an unusual time in order to overwhelm their adversaries or just to wear out an adversary group by really pushing 24-7 operations. Can you just talk a little bit about like the role of information and the role of these self-organized groups, the corporations, and relate that back to the military? How is this almost like a substitute for what we traditionally think of as like a top-down hierarchy in military organization and operations? So first of all, with the information, you definitely see within the EVE universe, the importance of information in warfare. It isn't just a matter, and it's far from just a matter of whoever shows up with the biggest ships wins. In fact, showing up with the biggest ships can be a disaster at times if you don't know what's happening around you. You see routinely within the game a lot of deception, baiting, espionage, the importance of OPSEC. One of the things that's true about my corporation is that it takes all comers. Anybody who wants to sign up is welcome. And so what that means is that they're always operating with the understanding that their systems, that their communications can be compromised at the most basic level. And that encourages, it colors the way that those systems are used and how information is is chopped up and, and kept at higher levels when it's more important. This mirrors, obviously, anybody who's got the most passing familiarity with the, the DOD's systems of classification, it mirrors some of that to some extent, that you've got different stratifications of information control and then different levels of vetting that are involved for, uh, for players to be able to have access to it. But in terms of the hierarchical nature of what you described there, Eric, this has all evolved organically. There's, there is a hierarchy within, to some degree, within the or, some of the organizations in the, in the EVE universe. My corporation that I operate within has different levels of interaction that people can engage in depending on how long they've been around, how many kills they have, what their skills are. So there is some uh, hierarchy there, but it's evolved organically over time. It's not something that's driven by a lot of the sometimes counterproductive factors that drive things in DoD. When you describe the, the EVE environment, I, I had never heard of EVE before, but, but when you when I read your article and Jordan shot it over to me, I, started, I sent it to a bunch of my friends as, and they all thought it was really great. But it, it immediately made me think about the StarCraft paradigm where we've been hearing about, we have the AlphaGo AI that had been playing StarCraft and like beating humans like in this one-on-one -on -one where in StarCraft, you're controlling your own world and like all of your units like simultaneously and you're putting those into combat. But it seems like EVE is a different paradigm where you have the massive online game where you have teams of humans and teams of machines having these individuated roles. And so how do you see the future of warfare in terms of this kind of StarCraft versus EVE paradigm? So I think uh, certainly when you describe the uh, 1v1, and I've seen that story about how the computer beat a player 
uh, one-on-one within StarCraft. There's no such, there's no model like that for one-on-one within the EVE universe. EVE is not like chess. Like it is infinitely more complex. I'm sure chess players would disagree, but I would say it's, you know, the world is infinitely more complex than that. Cause it's not, you never have a one versus one. You know, if you do have, did have a 1v1 uh, encounter, that'd be one sole little encounter between two players uh, playing each other, an entirely different factor than what we see here. And quite frankly, much of the, the, the game isn't even in the game. There's the meta game that is so much of what happens in the EVE universe, which is like the folks at my, at the, for example, the level of the C, my corporation CEO, those people hardly, a lot of them hardly ever even log in. Like the game that they're playing is the organizational contest where they're, you know, it's whether it's propaganda on Reddit or how they're organizing their, their how they're selecting their leaders, their leaders or fleet commanders, how they're incentivizing the members of their corporation to engage, to play the game, to commit resources, etc. We've seen I've seen within the game our adversaries, for example, issuing war bonds where you literally had the corporation came up with a way to borrow in-game funds from its uh, previous players. I've seen them call up their reserves. A lot of it is them, like them reaching out via email to players that haven't played in years to try to call call them up uh, and get into the war that we're involved in. Much of the contest isn't even really in the game. It's the meta game that I don't think any AI would have have a hard time imagining them being able to compete with. Yeah, that's interesting. When it feels like in the StarCraft world, right, like the computer has this bird's eye view of all of its units and everything going on, and it can choreograph that in a perfect way. And it feels like in some ways, like the StarCraft version of war, this kind of top-down style that kind of aligns with maybe my naive perception of the Chinese strengths and how they could beat the U.S. And if America tried to play the StarCraft version of war, then that's playing to Chinese advantages and they would beat us in that. But if the U.S. plays an EVE version of war where you have this imperfect information, lots of distributed people making decisions that overlap with one another and are coordinated in this kind of more social way, then that can create the complex actions that beat the automated but hierarchical version of a Chinese force playing StarCraft. So what's your reaction to that? I think there could be a fair bit to that. A lot of people have said certainly that historically the strength of the U.S. forces in combat has often been individual initiative that's that's been the hallmark of many of the uh, U.S. military service members. And I certainly see individual initiative as mattering a lot within that universe, if that's the construct we're gonna see. You can see it within the game in how your small units handle things. There's been times, for example, where I was with a small standing fleet that was just doing defensive operations and we saw an opportunity to take advantage of a situation. And we had a player who wasn't a designated fleet commander, but just said, hey, I'll take it, let's go do this. And, and you have a rapid response there to deal with the situation, as opposed to following the usual hierarchical way that you would call up forces and get people to log on and get a designated fleet commander involved. So certainly within the EVE universe, some of those strengths that play to traditional West American or Western strengths, really more American strengths, do matter within that universe for sure. I certainly, when when you look at the complexity of warfare, and we see some of this in the EVE universe, I just have really have a hard time imagining AI that can work with that in, in the sense of the deception that happens, the, the espionage, all that's really been baked in over decade, over almost, well, 17 years now, I think of that it's been going, all these years of competition and conflict. Yeah, it seems like AI really is, it can optimize narrow things, but when you have a big complex tapestry of events going on, 
how is it going to provide causation when it's just looking at all these correlations and has no idea what real things are in the real world? There is some AI within the game. So there are, while it is technically illegal within the game, there are players that use bots uh, to automate some things that they're that they're characters are doing within the game and it's it is the same kind of stuff that you we typically people talk about dull dirty dangerous for example asteroid mining uh, you know players will have bots operating multiple characters where they've got robots essentially controlling their ships that are doing mining operations for example that are where they can have large numbers of ships that are being controlled at the same time but what is a back and forth to the employment of those sorts of things both in the terms of the game developers in which they try to stamp that out from happening but also in terms of the competition within the game so i can tell you for example that my corporation and this is just a sign of how they're always experimenting and the how the, comp the crucible of competition always drives adaptation and evolution and how they fight is that my understanding of one of the new ways that we're employing ships in my group is that we figured out that the adversary is having players controlling multiple ships at one time. And so our response was to use a much more dynamic ship that goes a lot faster and basically overwhelms their ability to, to have the bandwidth to control multiples uh, multiple ships at the same time. So I think you see that competition going on all the time within the game. Another one of the things that you pointed out, Tom, is the corporation, the way it schools up people and teaches them the sort of rules of the road and how that, and how like the the state of the art in Eve land is far ahead of what you've seen in, in the US military. As I said, the first time I joined a corporation years ago, there wasn't anything like this. It was a much smaller group. But when I joined my the corporation I'm in now, that again has more than 10,000 members, the onboarding process was really quite striking. Most of it is not within the game. There's links within the game that you just click on the link and it sends you to a third party website that my corporation, for example, maintains. And it has page after page of things you need to read and do to be ready just to operate at the most basic level within the corporation. So here's how we communicate. Here's the shorthand we use in text, text chat to, to provide intelligence information. Here's how we deal with neutrals. So alliance management, rules of engagement, how to communicate, how not to communicate, things you can do that'll get you kicked out, all, all those basics. You'll also see in terms of the buttonology, instead of what I've oftentimes seen in the defense world, of electronic tech manuals that are difficult to understand and, and, and uh, make operating equipment challenging, they literally have video animations that show where you arrow up and click on this thing here so that they've already worked through helping you to get past a lot of the challenges that folks will tend to deal with from a technical basis in making making the systems work. But the real thing that's that I find really effective is was the personal interaction that you get. And again, it's all virtual, but it works in the sense that there's, for example, always an instructor available for new pilots to reach out to. There's a text chat channel called the Newbie Initiative, Newbie being short for a newbie, you know, new player. So the new player initiative within the group where there are, there are duty instructors available at all times for you to go reach out to. And if you're having trouble figuring out how to do something, they'll help you out with that. When you join a fleet, a larger fleet that's going into a, a significant battle, there's a voice sub chat channel that you can join where you're there with an instructor and other new pilots. And so that the instructor can help can help translate for you the voice commands that the fleet commander's giving to help you understand what it is that they're talking about and to be able to operate effectively. So whether it's in voice chat, text chat, YouTube videos that show you how to do things, there's just a hybrid multi-level and multi-aspect way of onboarding and training that, that helps people to be effective quickly within the game. Tom, how much easier would your life have been if the 21-year-olds on your sub had access to the similar, like a similar level of, of training and feedback? I think it would work uh, really well in some cases. In other cases, not 
that would make quite as much difference. It, it depends a lot on the roles that we're talking about. Quite frankly, I think that much of what we see within the EVE universe in terms of what it teaches people is more at the warfighting level than it is at the technician level. So much of what the U.S. military does in terms of the, the folks on our ships, for example, is they're technicians, right? They're there to, op to fix equipment, maintain it, operate it. And that's a little different than what I think is of the, the greater value in the EVE universe, which is the fighting end of it, the tactics and the ability to make decisions and, and employ forces to, to achieve objectives. And the reason for this is just it, because of that constant competition, folks that are operating in there, even if they're, say, a 19-year-old fleet commander, they had this, because they've been doing this for years in some cases, they have this marrow deep understanding of really dynamic concepts like deception, baiting, espionage, concentration of force, defeat in detail, logistical support, alliance management. And in terms of acquisition, you know, acquisition is something that happens there too. Like EVE players have an intimate understanding of the trades in, involved with the swap C trades, power versus weight versus, versus firepower. Those trades are being made all the time as you're specifying the ships that you're gonna operate and, uh, and achieve the combat mission. So to some extent, I think it's that, that kind of higher level thinking that, that we'd have the most benefits. <laughs> One of my friends, Bruce Goodmudson, he runs a decision-forcing case study group where they go through either old campaigns and like dissect what happened operationally, or like even like Klaus Witt's like tabletop exercises and go through how they were thinking about it. And I think there's a lot of value in that and seeing what happened and what those decision processes were to build up people. But it also you made this really excellent point, I think, that sometimes lessons from the past wars are potentially less relevant than some of these kinds of like simulations like EVE where you're bringing in potentially more relevant types of capabilities and, and things like electronic warfare and communications and all this type of stuff. Why not study World War II campaigns or Napoleon type tactics for the future of great power competition? Or is that like a compliment to like studying EVE and stuff like that? I think it is a compliment. I think that there's different lessons to be, lawn, to be drawn from a lot of those different perspectives. My point in bringing those up within my article was just that don't sneer at this just because it's a video game. Because I know there are people that, oh, this is just a video game. We don't have anything to learn from, from, from some silly computer game. But on the other hand, it is simulating a lot of things. And I shouldn't say simulating. It is uh, notional employment of some of those factors that do exist in modern warfare. Again, electronic warfare, rail guns, missiles. Uh, a lot closer than if you're going to simulate the Battle of Waterloo to what we are likely to see in the real world. I can tell you that within the game itself, I have seen players in the game, whether they knew it or not, they were doing commerce raiding, convoy operations, choke point defense, choke point seizure, attritional warfare, industrial warfare, island hopping, siege warfare. Uh, they were talking about, I've seen them talk about war termination. There's propaganda, information warfare. And in many cases, they don't even know that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. I can tell you as a quick example, I was out on a, this very small group of, of players, maybe a dozen players, and we had a, somebody decide, okay, I'm going to be the fleet commander. This is a person that wasn't really trained uh, to be a fleet commander, but decided just to, to we're going to run this small gang out to deal with some folks. And here you've got this person, he stopped and we had a, a quick discussion. And here you've got somebody who, as far as I know, has no military training, but is talking about doing risk assessment. Okay, here's what they have available. Here's what we have. We don't have a strategic objective. And if we engage, it'll just be an attritional fight and that's not to benefit for us. So let's be conservative here and, and we're gonna take this route instead. So you've got fairly sophisticated risk assessment going on by somebody who has no military training. And it's all begin because they've got that marrow deep understanding of competition from what they're dealing with in the game 24 seven. Yeah, those, um, those emergent properties of these complex situations, 
there's a lot of information in there and it's hard to fake that except for getting a whole bunch of people to engage in this and see what kind of emergent features come out of it. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like how much more you learn from experiencing all of this than you would from like an extra round of Call of Duty, um, which <laughs> way more Americans, way more people all around the world. I just, and, and I'm guilty of this too. Just like, it's fun to just have like very dumb interactions with PC games and shoot things and watch them blow up and wash your hands of it after a 10 minute round versus seeing the sort of like richness of a really complex system, which is on display in EVE. Tom, whenever you start your lessons from EVE DOD consulting firm, sign me up. I am, I'm right there with you. But in all seriousness, I totally agree with Eric in that um, not looking at this, but there's enough money in DOD. You figure there'd be at least a million dollar contract out there for someone to explore like the campaign histories of, of Yvonne Live and the lessons that can be plumbed for them. I, I agree. And to be clear, I don't necessarily think I'm the guy to go do it. I, I'm not a PhD. I'm not an academic. I'm not really looking to go be the guy to do a detailed anthropological study of how the corporations work. But I, for me, it's a more matter of game recognizes game that as a generalist, I see what's happening there and I recognize that there's gotta be things we can learn there. But to give like a granular example of how efficient they are at what they do, let's say another player that's in my corporation gets attacked somewhere several systems away, comes under attack from an enemy. That player doesn't get out a piece of paper and write down a nine line with their latitude, longitude, and pecking out some sort of description of what's happening. They literally only have to type three letters in their chat channel, www, which is short for warp to me, I'm under attack. At that point, the other groups within the corporation, everyone will see that. All you have to do, and that person, all that person has to do is click and drag the system that they're in from the place on the screen that shows where they're at. They just gotta click and drag that to the text chat channel, www, click and drag. Everybody else now can just right click, set destination, and then that gives them a path to that system. Once they're in the system, they can just, again, cl right click, select that person and, and warp to a specific distance. There's no typing. There's no putting in latitudes, longitudes. All this is taken care of. And I, while I recognize that that's not the real world, why couldn't it be something like that? That if somebody had over JADC2 or whatnot, that if we really have systems that know where everybody is and what they're doing, why couldn't we do things like that? I think it could be a very useful source of inspiration for techniques that could be useful. So I, I want to give a shout out to this book, Empires of Eve, a, a history of the great wars of Eve Online, which does a bit of this from the sort of like grand strategic level, looking at the tactical and operational levels as well, I think is absolutely super awesome PhD, which I really hope someone out there listening to this gets on. And if they do, I'd love to have you on the podcast to continue this discussion. No, that'd be great. I've read the book. I read volume one. Uh, volume two is supposedly in the works. Volume one was very interesting. It was all describing things that happened well before my time in the game. But definitely you see this just really incredibly Machiavellian stuff happening and, the, and again, lots of deception and espionage and just... The dynamics are really impressive. If, if you also just YouTube The Great Wars Eve Online, the author has a PPT that he walks through, which is like a, an hour-long overview of this to get you a sense. And also has some visuals too, which you can get a kick out of, like spaceships blowing up. Yeah, and the, the war, I'm actually in a war right now. The, the one, one I've been involved in for the last six or 
so months, uh, my corporation's been fighting that. It's actually much bigger than any of those in the book. They're actually much larger scale now, which has been quite something. We've seen within in the game in the last few months, we've had literally Guinness World Record breaking engagements in terms of the numbers of players involved, where we had six thousand, six seven thousand players in one star system, which has really been pushed the limits of the game to be able to cope with it. There have been issues with weird things happening where the the game servers have really been pushed to the limit. Well, the Air Force is looking at, they have these prime efforts. I I spoke with uh, Colonel Diller on that. And one of them that they're looking for is digital game prime to support not just digital engineering, but designing military campaigns. So maybe that effort will have something to learn from uh, Eve. Yeah, I certainly, folks have asked me, do do you see Eve as somewhere to go to war game, basically to, to try things? And I think that you might be able to try to do that, but I think for the most part, it's a place to go do anthropological study of what they're doing because people should have no illusions. You're not going to go into the Eve universe and figure out how to do things better than they already are because they've been at it for years now. And I cannot imagine if you took a dozen of your best whatever within DOD and said, okay, go into the Eve universe, I guarantee you they would just get annihilated. Those folks are going to go into the game and get destroyed by people who are self-selected for different characteristics than what the military looks for and that they're really good at what they do there. The collection of folks who got over in the barracks at any military base that are selected for the willingness to hazard themselves physically, their physical characteristics, the fact that they don't have asthma, they're not colorblind, they none of those things matter when it comes to being able to excel in that virtual universe. And quite frankly, that virtual universe Maybe a lot more like what the future of warfare looks like when you got remote systems being controlled in large numbers uh, by people in distributed locations. I guess one of their thoughts is if you have a digital engineering environment where you have all these digital twins and then you can aggregate those into an environment, something like Eve, you're not going to replicate Eve, but then put people in, into that situation. And then what emerges as like winning strategies might be something to learn from. It, it oh, I absolutely back. think yeah. that you should have sandboxes of your own where you can go learn things that matter for making decisions about the future of what your organization looks like and how it fights. Absolutely, we should have our own sandboxes. But what I would never do is confuse the Eve sandbox as somewhere that you can go figure out how to do things better than they do. So, you know, uh, one, one of my friends, when he saw the Eve thing, he was actually like, Ender's Game is similar. There's a, that's a similar paradigm. How would you push back? I actually don't think of them as very similar. It, it looked like there was more top-down command and control in terms of Ender's Game. So I'd be interested to, to get your view on how, does, how do you see Ender's Game as being different from Eve? That's a great question. And it's not the first time I've seen that comparison and, and been asked that. So it's different on a number of levels. For one thing, Ender's Game was the Again, it was the in-game experience, not encapsulating the metagame experience that you see within the EVE universe, where so much of what matters in terms of the, whether organizations win or lose is, the, is beyond just the button clicking within the game. It's the morale, it's the organization, it's the larger coordination, much of which happens outside of the in-game universe itself. So there's that aspect to it. But even in terms of the specifics of how the command and control is executed, for example, the in, in Ender's game, from what I recall, it was a group of people going to one place to to operate in from one location and control remotely controlled forces somewhere else. And what I think is very interesting about the Eve universe is that's not what the Eve, what the Eve command and control looks like, where command and control is completely atomized. It is individuals in their houses on just vanilla, plain Jane PCs, Macs, whatever, with no extra fancy stuff involved, and completely distributed wherever they happen to live all around the world. And I think that matters a great deal because we know that in the precision strike era, for example, 
that efforts will be focused, you know, in the case in particular of the Chinese PLA rocket force, we know from the what's been released into open source of what their targeting categories are and what their targeting priorities are, that if you did create something like Ender's Game where you had a special building where you got together a bunch of people together in one place to control things remotely, that would be target number one. And with, and with one successful strike, whether it was kinetic or non-kinetic, could be neutralized. As opposed to the EVE construct where you've got thousands of people operating all over the world, you can't target that in anything like that. So I think it's in that way, it's significantly different than what you Ender's Game. And here's to maybe blockchain being part of that distributed operations and securing. Oh, for sure. There's going to be ways that people would go after it. Absolutely. But there's going to be measures to that, of course. And I should say up front that, and I actually should have said first thing, but I'll have to close with, as always, a caveat that my opinions that expressed today are in no way, those are mine alone and are not those of any organization with which I'm affiliated or have been affiliated. Thanks so much, Tom, for being a part of China Acquisition Talk. My pleasure. Thank you, Jordan and Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.